The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kencaran. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week. Katie Balls on the new divisions within the Labour Party and what Jeremy Corbyn might run for next. Peter Hitchens describes the joys of cycling and his dislike of e-bikes and e-scooters. And Anthony Horowitz joins us from Crete, where he ponders the end of the world, becoming a grandfather and the travel limitations after Brexit. First up, it's Katie Balls. Earlier this summer, a hundred or so Londoners gathered around a solar-powered stage truck at Highbury Fields to celebrate 40 years of Jeremy Corbyn in Parliament. There was music, magic, tricks and merriment. Attendees were encouraged to party like it was 2017. The opening act sang, Jezza and me, we agree, we're all for peace and justice and anti-austerity. We're voting Jeremy Corbyn, JC, for MP, for me. For those in the Labour Party watching from afar, this wasn't just a celebration. It was a soft launch of Corbyn's campaign to be the independent MP for Islington North. Just how many constituents will vote for him as an independent remains to be seen, but he can still inspire partygoers. The villain of the day wasn't Rishi Sunak, but Sir Keir Starmer. When Starmer was mentioned by a speaker who described him as lying, self-interested and opportunistic, the audience booed and jeered. This dynamic represents a risk to Labour beyond the specific political ecosystem of North London. Left-wing voters, tired of Starmer's move to the right, might in the next election vote Green, Independent or not vote at all. Corbyn, 74, has made little secret of the fact he wants to stay in politics. At an Edinburgh Fringe event this week, where he appeared alongside his old mate Red Len, he told the audience that he was available to represent the people, if that is what they wish. He even refused to rule out running for London Mayor. Well, let's have a think about it, shall we? Few believe that Corbyn will really go so far as to try the Ken Livingstone route and join the mayoral race as an independent. While some of his old advisers have encouraged the idea, running for City Hall is expensive and requires nominations London-wide. Crowdfunding could be an option, however. The former Labour Mayor for the North of Tyne, Jamie Driscoll, has raised more than 120000 of his £150,000 target to fund his own campaign to run as an independent. If Corbyn did decide to run for London Mayor, the fear in Labour isn't that he would beat Sadiq Khan, but that he would split the vote and let the Tories in. Changes brought in with the Electoral Reform Act 2022 mean that next year's mayoral election will take place using first-past-the-post voting. If Corbyn were to look for funds, some Tory donors would probably be more than happy to help. Polling for Redfield and Wilton, taken in June, suggested Corbyn would take a mere 7% of the vote, but this would cut Khan's lead on the Conservatives to just 4%. So it's rather tight particularly in the aftermath of the Tories' narrow victory in the Uxbridge by-election. Starmer's team have done little to hide their own frustration with Cowan. 
we should win the London mayoral race as a Tory figure. There are a lot of factors going in our favour. Anti-Sadiq sentiment and Ulez. Should Corbyn stick to Islington North, Starmer allies are dismissive of the idea he could hold the Labour safe seat. Majority 26,188. But others in the party will not to underestimate him. It depends on the candidates, says one Labour figure. If the party centrally imposes someone with no local connections and to the right, it's possible he could do it. The need to pick someone on the left. Rumoured runners and riders include former Channel 4 hack Paul Mason, but the idea is yet to catch fire in Labour HQ. Driscoll is another banished Labour politician refusing to go quietly. Blocked by the Labour leadership from standing for nomination as a candidate for North East Mayor, he is going for it alone. Comments on his GoFundMe page complain about the undemocratic and morally bankrupt excuse for a Labour leader and declare that Labour is now a Tory tribute act. Driscoll ultimately running against Labour, the candidate is Starmer-aligned Kim McGuinness, the favourite to take the new mayoralty. He has cited the Livingston model as evidence it is doable. Several Labour councillors quit in support, along with a former media officer of Blythe Labour Party. He warned that a vote for the Labour candidate equals a candidate that will agree to whatever her paymasters tell her, and her paymasters are the Labour London office. As the public mood turns on Westminster, independents could have an electoral advantage. These independents running against Labour touch upon a growing unhappiness at the direction of travel under Starmer. This week, a shadow immigration minister confirmed that a Labour government would keep migrants on barges for a time, which led to more howls from the left. Corbyn accused Starmer of political cowardice. Policies that have seen mainstream Labour politicians like Metro Mayor Andy Burnham and Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa clash with Starmer include the refusal to commit to free school meals and the insistence that the two-child benefit cap will remain. When Corbyn and Driscoll rail against these climb downs, including scaling back ambitions on climate, they are speaking to a part of the Labour coalition. The Green Party too is defining itself against a Tory light Starmer. Labour's electoral strategy is based on the idea that elections are won from the centre, and wooing 2019 Tory swing voters is key. The belief is that these voters can be prioritised, as Liberal and Left voters will vote tactically to get the Tories out. The last two elections have seen extreme Labour vote share rises in the campaign on the back of green tactical voting, says one election analyst. But the last two elections also saw Labour led by a leader to the left of Starmer. Whether it's from pragmatism or belief, Starmer is the most right-wing leader since Tony Blair. This means he risks two problems. First, the difficulty of holding the line of his party once in power. Should Starmer have a small majority, the opinions of MPs on the left will become much more important. They could hold the power, warns one Labour aide. Party elders are already suggesting Team Starmer ought to start befriending Lib Dems, on the grounds that even with a majority, their votes could be required. More immediately, Starmer needs to hope that he doesn't push Labour's left-wing voters so far that they decide their interests are better served elsewhere. There's no shortage of people keen for their votes. That was Katie Balls. Next is Peter Hitchens. An impossible 45 years ago, I decided the moment had come to get back on my pushbike. I'd long hated the way the motor car was taking over the world and wanted to play my part in changing this. I also had a more selfish reason. 
After two years on the Fleet Street diet of lunchtime excess, I could already see my first heart attack was not far off. I was in my late 20s and getting almost no exercise. I knew of people in the newspaper business who did so little walking that the uppers of their shoes wore out before the soles did. Something had to be done. In those days, bikes had not moved on since my childhood days, pedalling my heavy green Hercules over the Sussex Downs on summer afternoons. The brakes were as feeble, especially in the wet. The Sturmy Archer three-speed gears were just the same. The big difference was that there were millions more cars, and their drivers all hated me. I remember many things about those early days as a militant cyclist in the nation's capital. I recall the morning my rattling second-hand bike was stolen by a middle-aged geezer in a tweed jacket who managed to escape even though I was beating him around the head with a bag of dirty laundry at the time. I especially recall the struggle to get up Primrose Hill on my first two-wheeled journey home. The way in had been all downhill. But this was a serious gradient, and I was not going to give up and get off. As a result... I almost lost consciousness. The months of browsing and sluicing on the Daily Express had already begun to clog my cardiovascular system, and I swear I could feel actual globs of fat detaching themselves from the insides of my arteries as I heaved myself upwards. Until then, I just suspected this was important. Afterwards, I knew. I joined campaigns. I planned my routes to avoid the hatred of car drivers and the indifference of lorries and buses. I thought it might make sense to ride across the middle of the Hyde Park corner roundabout rather than holding my breath and joining the rivers of steel which flowed around the junction. So it would have been, except that constables appeared from a tiny police station in the Wellington Arch and crossly ordered me off. And the path, now an established bike route, was in those days reserved entirely for the royal family and their fleet of large cars. Since then, most things about cycling have grown far better. Machines are lighter, brakes hugely more efficient, gears luxurious, reflective clothing and lights immeasurably improved, though I remain baffled by the widespread habit of wearing a styrofoam bowl on your head. Cycle paths and tracks are everywhere. Quite a few drivers show cyclists courtesy and consideration. But there are bad things too. Not least the other cyclists who cut me up by undertaking me, or give us all a bad name by slicing through pedestrian crossings. But these are as nothing beside the menace of the electric bike and the e-scooter. For decades we fought for segregated cycle paths where no motor vehicle was allowed, and we finally won. But no sooner had we done so than they began to be invaded by things which look like bicycles to the uninitiated, but are in fact electric motorbikes. They are astonishingly heavy. Try to pick up one of these things as it lies on its side on the pavement, as they so often do. Typically they weigh more than five stone, a normal pedal bike weighs about two. Officially limited to about 15 miles an hour, they can easily be tweaked to go much, much faster. This is technically illegal, but can you tell me who is checking? And then there are the cargo bikes, which can weigh about 12 stone and carry loads of about the same. If one of these hits you at any kind of speed, it will do you serious damage. So, their arrival on cycle tracks undoes 40 years of campaigning to segregate muscle-powered, light, silent, clean cycles from engine-powered, whining, polluting heavy vehicles. May I just mention here that e-bikes and their hideous cousins, e-scooters, are powered by batteries, which are charged by power stations. And much British power is imported from the Netherlands, which still uses fossil fuels to make some of its electricity. Thus, a million smug expressions on the faces of the users of such vehicles are completely unjustified. I have personal reasons to go further, having visited hideous mines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 
from which the metals for the batteries are grubbed by gaunt children on starvation pay. There is nothing ethical about these machines. I've broken off relations with my local cycling lobby in Oxford, Cyclogs, partly because they continue to treat e-bikes as the equivalent of proper bikes. Their attitude is common. The FT's Henry Mance is typical of metropolitan trenders in praising them, gushing recently, Have you ridden an electric bike? If not, you should probably stop reading this article and go find one. Hire one on the street. Borrow your neighbours. Steal one if you have to. Sat on the saddle, with the help of the motor, you will magically become half as old and twice as fit. Henry, you will absolutely not become twice as fit. Electric bikes cannot give you the exercise that proper muscle-powered machines provide. Claims are made that they offer some sort of fitness, but if I'd ridden one of those things up Primrose Hill all those years ago, I doubt I would have discovered the vast and lasting health benefits that hard pedalling provides to anybody who wants it. If people want to ride motorbikes, let them, once they've passed a severe test, as I have in fact done. But please, don't pretend these things have any of the benefits of a proper, old-fashioned bicycle. That was Peter Hitchens, and finally, here's Anthony Horowitz. The temperature has hit 40 degrees centigrade in Crete, where I'm recording this. And although there have been no fires, nothing is quite how it ought to be. I can't work out whether this is a great opportunity to get a tan, or, effectively, the end of the world. My 60-year-old taxi driver tells me that unfeasibly hot summers were a regular occurrence when he was young, I mean, there's nothing to worry about. But, he adds, he'll be dead soon anyway. So why should he care? Right or wrong, this is a paradox at the heart of the climate change debate. Older people, who could be held responsible for the destruction of the planet, don't need to worry. And young people who have so much more to lose don't really have a say. We invented plastic, they live with it. The anger aimed at two peers elected when they're either side of 30 and the scorn directed at a new MP aged just 25 are misplaced. We have to share power with young people. They're the ones looking the right way. Ever since the arrival of my first grandson, Leander Horowitz, the name is Greek, Lion Man, born one month ago, I've been thinking a lot about old age. There's something unsettling about becoming a papoose, if that's what I must now call myself. I disliked all my grandparents who seemed ancient and disconnected. I even wrote a book about one of them, Granny, a horrible woman who, following an argument with one of her sons, decided not to speak to him again for 25 years. Is Leander going to find me as otherworldly as I found them? Anyway, I've already decided on one rule. I will not be called anything that begins with G. If he wants to be friendly, he can call me Anthony. If he wants to be polite, then it's going to have to be Sir. Leander weighed just five pounds when he was born, and he really is a miracle. How can fingers so tiny actually work? How did he learn to express himself with that blazing smile? What's odd is that I find myself worrying almost continuously about the world into which he has been born. Not just climate change, but the collapse of the USA, the dominance of China, Russia, obviously, the decline of decency and moral values, litter in the streets, and so on. Not surprisingly, Leander hasn't noticed any of these things, which leads me to the question I've been considering more and more. Every generation ends up believing that things are getting worse and worse. 
But are they? I grew up in the shadow of nuclear war. I was seven at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I read C.P. Snow and watched the sky for approaching missiles, which never arrived. Is it part of the human condition that we need to live with fear? On a more personal note, I may have written my last children's book, Nightshade Revenge, which comes out later this year. It'll be the 14th in the Alex Ryder series, and I'm happy to have equaled the number of books written by another well-known writer with another famous spy, even if I haven't quite managed his sales. The new millennium was so exciting with a whole wave of authors cresting on the success of J.K. Rowling, Philip, Mallory, Owen, Michael, Jacqueline, Darren, and me. She was the only one without a first name. Who were the new stars? Despite the valiant efforts of one or two journalists, press interest seems to have withered. Mind you, I'm not definitively announcing my retirement. I wrote what was, what was meant to be the final Ryder book ten years ago, and have since done four more. Six weeks from now, a film unit will be arriving in Agios Nikolaos to film Moonflower Murders, a six-part TV series which will be shown on the BBC next year. To thank me for bringing attention and business to the town, the mayor has very kindly arranged a special ceremony for me in October. I will be given an award and some of my work will be shown at the local cinema. But will I be able to attend? I've been to so many literary festivals this year, but I've run out of days that I can stay in Europe. Even as the economic misery of Brexit continues to bite, I fight against the soul-destroying pettiness of it all. And here it is in a nutshell. I am being given an honour in Crete, but I'm not allowed in to receive it. As much as I love The Spectator, I still don't understand why the magazine came out in favour. I've concealed a message to them inside this diary. You'll have to read it. It doesn't work on audio. It's a single word in Greek. That was Anthony Horowitz bringing Spectator out loud to a close for another week. If you've enjoyed these articles and would like more, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks for listening. And please do join us again next week. <laughs>